do you think that Huey made you a better teacher because of the way he challenged and pushed you? Uh, I think, as you know, every student for me is a challenge, as you know. <laughs> but, <laughs> but dealing with uh, Newton was a very interesting experience for me. And I developed sympathy and a great deal of affection for him as a person, as a human being, you know, so. This is Akash Pandey, and you are listening to South Asians Love Rap, stories from people who look like me, set to the music that moves them. This is the 10th and final episode of the first season, and I'm trying something new. You know how when you're growing up, you don't really know what your parents do? Like, you know what their occupation is. My parents were both professors, but the day-to-day, year-to-year reality of their work is a mystery. Or maybe not even a mystery, because that would imply asking questions to try to figure out what they do. It's more that it kind of just seems boring. They work, they teach, they come home and ask you how your day was. But you don't ask it back, do you? I, I never remember asking, how was work today, Papa? How, how was class, Bo? Ironically, The story I'm going to tell you today answers exactly that sort of question. It's about my dad at work over a couple years in his late 30s, when he was a tenured professor of anthropology at UC Santa Cruz. His focus was on native peoples of North America. His PhD had been a study of the Zuni tribe in the American Southwest. But at the time, he had just taken over as chair of the History of Consciousness Department when it received an application from a student named Huey P. Newton. The Black Panther Party for Self-Defense is organized now throughout the nation. We are recognized internationally, and we advocate that all black people in America are taught what politics is all about and what our history is all about so that we can have self-identity and we can know where our strength is. We will know our enemies and we'll know our friends. Yes, that Huey P. Newton, who arrived at UC Santa Cruz in the late 1970s with a curious mind, fame, and some thick scars from the previous decade. There have been a number of big stories out recently about the Black Panthers with hints of Huey's importance. In the Oscar-nominated film, Judas and the Black Messiah, about FBI infiltrator Bill O'Neill and Chairman Fred Hampton in Chicago, you see the iconic poster of Huey on the office walls, where he's seated in that wicker chair holding a spear in one arm and a rifle in the other while rocking his uh, revolutionary garb. Just last month in February, CBS News reported that Huey's hometown of Oakland was honoring him too. New at six today, Oakland renamed one of its streets after a co-founder of the Black Panther Party. This three block stretch of 9th Street in West Oakland has been renamed to Dr. Huey P. Newton Way. The story I'm gonna share today answers a question that I'm sure some folks will have when they look up at that new street sign in West Oakland. Why does it say Dr. Huey P. Newton? How did he get that title? 
in a way, it is a postscript on the turbulence of the 1960s, focused on the unlikely but critical bond between a teacher and a student, Papa and Huey. You may be wondering what this has to do with South Asians who love rap. Neither Papa nor Huey qualify there. And I'd argue there are some connections. For one, I don't think my interest in Huey would be what it is without hearing his name in songs from artists like Tupac and Changes. It's time to fight back, that's what Huey said. Two shots in the dark, now Huey's dead. I got love for my brother, but we can never go nowhere unless we share with each other. And Kendrick Lamar in High Power. I mean, this shit is Huey Newton going stupid. You can't resist his high power. Throw your hands up for high power. There's also moments in this story like when Papa mentions Huey never traveled without his people around him, that made me consider the lineage of black celebrities after him, Tupac, Allen Iverson, who felt the exact same way. But the real truth is that this episode is not about rap. It's about my father as a teacher and his recollections of an American icon with a complicated legacy. After Huey's death in 1989, his lawyer Charles Gary told the CBS News that the FBI killed him. When I say killed him, I don't mean they put a gun to his head. They destroyed him as a person, where he became a paranoid, sick person. It's a wonder that he was still alive. I was surprised to hear Huey characterized this way, as if his mind, voice, his humanity weren't real things that he possessed past the horrors of the 60s. So, I asked my father to tell me the story of how Huey got his PhD, starting from the beginning. With COVID, Papa's 81 and recently got his two shots, we opted for a video chat instead of an in-person visit. Like with most things in my house, my mom needed to get involved. Okay. All the time, sir. Yeah, nahi. After you got the wrong charger, no problem. You will get you the right charger. Papa is old school to a T. He's never shown any interest in learning how to use a computer and only recently got his first smartphone. Okay, so <clears throat> I want to uh, I wanted to start from the top, from how Huey came to be a PhD student at UC Santa Cruz. To do that justice, Papa had to explain the history of the History of Consciousness Department. It was at a crossroads in the mid-1970s. In order to help save it, a small committee formed, made two crucial hiring decisions, and then appointed him an anthropologist, to chair the department for a year. That's when they received the high-profile application. Fui Newton had come in the very beginning, in 1977 or so, and uh, uh, when he had applied, I remember there was a letter in support of his application from the chairman of Board of Regents of the University of California, and people like that. So the project which uh, 
he was proposing, we thought was a very interesting one. He wanted to study the history of oppression in American society. Huey's proposal was accepted, and he arrived as a PhD candidate later that year. I didn't know when I met him that he had this revolutionary past, you know. So Yeah, what did you know I, about him when you first met him? Oh, I knew that he was a very important leader of the Black Panther Party. And I knew something about the Black Panther Party and the kind of harassment uh, he and people like him were having from the police in Oakland and other areas. As you know, I'm a product of the 60s. I came in 1963 that to a city like Chicago. Unlike many Indian immigrants who came to America after the 1965 immigration bill, Papa arrived in 1963 as a graduate student at University of Chicago. So I remember the kind of violence there was in American society, and in particular towards uh, African-Americans. So that aspect I was familiar with, but I still did not know that uh, uh, he had gone to China as a guest of Chow and Lai. I would would advise you to go to uh, the People's Republic of China, free territory, where you don't have that credibility gap because the government and the people are one. What did Chow and Lai have to say to you? What did John Lai tell you? Premier Chow and Lai offered the solidarity of the Chinese people and support of the oppressed people of America. He offered solidarity with the Black Panther Party. And he had gone to Cuba as a guest of Fidel Castro. And he had become a world celebrity, you know. Everybody knew who who, who Newton was. So a celebrity steps onto campus, but teachers still have to teach. It just so happened that fall... Papa was teaching the core course for the entering class. The course was uh, the nature of mythic and ritual thought. Mm -hmm. And there were, I think, 12 students uh, from Hiskan and one from psychology. And we really had a, a wonderful weekly seminar, met in the late afternoon, continued until the evening. And I remember Hui Newton will come and his bodyguard will be sitting outside and his PA will be also sitting outside. And uh, it was a very intense class, you know, uh, mostly discussion, uh, fascinating discussion. And uh, I will take a break after an hour or so. And... uh, in the earlier part, mostly I will be talking based on the text we had read. And then I will invite the class to participate. And so it went, class time after class time, until one day, Huey showed a side of himself my dad hadn't seen before. I remember one of these occasions when uh, he was uh, interrupting the class all the time. And he will ask questions which were not really pertinent to the discussion we were having. And he had one or two admirers, you know, who will join him. So then the class will really move in another direction than what we were discussing based on the readings we had done. It was affecting the class and every student was just looking at me that how I'm going to handle it, you know, how how am I going to deal with it? So finally I took an early break and I confronted him outside the class. I did not want to say anything in the class. 
and I said that who uh, you may not know who you are, but the whole class knows who you are. <laughs> and this is not the way to behave in a graduate seminar. So if you continue to do what you were doing before, you will leave me with no choice, but just ask you to leave the class. He did not leave the class. He came back after the break and then uh, was subdued, did yeah. not really act out. This is as good a time as any to share a bit of background on Huey's prior experience with school. In his book, Revolutionary Suicide, he describes contentious relationships with teachers throughout middle school and high school. In one case, a teacher he had would not permit him to speak and sent him to the office anytime he did. He, he claims due to his oppositional relations with teachers, he didn't learn much in school. And it wasn't until he went to jail that he started to really educate himself. But then he came to see me the following week, made an appointment, came to see me the following week. And it was interesting because his PA called me and he said that Mr. Newton would like to see me. So I said, ask Mr. Newton to call me because uh, you don't want to see me. He wants to see me. Mm -hmm. So he called me and uh, uh, we sat and we talked for about an hour or so. And uh, he said that he was going to write a paper on science as American myth. Mm. So I said, that's wonderful, you know. And uh, I made some uh, suggestions of things he can read. And then he wrote, uh, he had some very interesting ideas. And uh, he wrote it rather well. But still, it was not really in any academic way, you know, because it was somewhat scattered uh, without any bibliography, without any uh, citations and all that. I think I just wrote my comments that this is all well and good, but you have to make it academic, that is, with proper citations, this and that. And I left the paper with Billy Harris, who used to be the departmental assistant. And she told me that Mr. Newton was very upset with my comments. Uh, and so I said, well, ask him to give him a call and ask him to call me yeah. or come and see me and we will discuss. So we discussed, you know, and he understood. So it ended up becoming a very good paper, you know. After that, he approached me and he said that he would like me to chair his committee. Some of you may know this already, but when you're getting a PhD, you assemble a committee of professors who end up advising you through the process. So I said, what do you have in mind? What do you want to do? And in what way I, an anthropologist, will uh, help you? So he said that uh, I'm really interested in uh, FBI surveillance and uh, what kind of documents they have on me. And uh, I would like you to help me in formulating it and how we should go about it. So I said, who are the other members of the committee you have in mind? So he says, Paige Smith, you know, and I say, and he said, Arthur Paul. So I said, that is a very good committee because uh, Arthur Paul was interested in psychological aspects of oppression and Paige Smith was interested in the historical part of it. So I said, look, uh, 
as an anthropologist, uh, my interest will be to go through the documents which you have gotten from uh, the government, Freedom of Information Act, you know, and let me see what kind of material those documents have. You know what was what you were doing, and you know how your action was read by the uh, FBI people and others who are collecting information on you. And uh, you can bring in that this is not unique. Things like that had happened in the past, and there Paige Smith should help you, the historian. And then what is the psychological impact of that on the person and the community he belongs to? And there, Arthur Pearl may be able to help you. So we agreed. The wheels were in motion. Papa and Huey agreed to work together, and the stage was set for the rest of the PhD journey. But I couldn't help but wonder why Huey chose Papa over the other professors he named or any other professor on campus. I personally feel that uh, it was because I was not really uh, part of the white establishment, even though in a way I was part of it. Papa was associated with Crown College, which held faculty members who at the time were very powerful on campus and very white too. I was non-white and uh, coming from the uh, Indian and British tradition, and uh, a trained anthropologist. So I think the personal side of me, as well as the academic side of me, really was appealing to him because he wanted respectability. What he told me is that, look, uh, he wants to be respected for what he is and what he has done. And in the way I deal with people, I don't. I did not make any exception for him. I deal with everybody with dignity, as you know. Yeah. So that he could see that he would not have an adversarial relation with me. I think I will be supportive of him, but I will still impose certain standards on him. So. So it began. Huey worked towards his PhD and made frequent visits to see Papa as he moved through the material and developed his ideas. You know, he came to see me with his books and all that several times. And he was always very nice to me, you know, always very courteous, very polite. Whatever were the prescribed readings, he had done it, you know. And he had some very interesting questions on what people were really saying. So He did the work. Yet there were times when his reputation, the infamy of his name, came into close focus. I remember... He needed my signature on something. And I was teaching a seminar, political anthropology, with some 15 or 20 students. And he just walked in. And uh, two students, you know, two young women students freaked out. Oh, he's loose. Hmm. We thought he's in jail. Our FBI got him, you know. So in a way, you know, because uh, he was very well known on the campus. And as a result... I said that you have to be protective of yourself, you know. He did not have to go through all this he was going through here, but he subjected himself to do that. And he was as bright as anybody else. And uh, I think he was the first one to to finish his PhD in his cohort. If you recall, Huey's PhD was about the history of repression in the United States, focused on his own experience. It required him to analyze FBI documents, 
that he acquired by filing a request covered by the Freedom of Information Act. And get this. The surveillance documents in a way came to about 80,000 pages or something like that. On him alone, 80,000. On on him alone, yeah, yeah. Just to put that number in context, let's say you go out and buy a box of printer paper, eight and a half by 11, 10 reams, 500 pages each, 20 pounds total. You could buy 15 of them, stack them up, 300 pounds of paper, and still be one box short of the number of documents collected on Huey P. Newton alone. I can only imagine, right, looking at 80,000 pages of surveillance documents about yourself and seeing the way that the American government followed your every move. And I'm curious, how do you remember that work impacting him when he was reading those documents and formulating an idea of oppression in America? Well, he was very sad, you know, and he was also very disturbed, you know. And uh, I'm not very good in psychological insights or in psychological part of it. And I knew that uh, Arthur will take care of that. Mm. But I was very disturbed, you know, in the way these documents about anybody will affect that person. I had no idea that uh, he he and his movement was pursued to that extent by Hoover and his FBI guys, you know, because I really, uh, I was rather ignorant about that phase of American history. I knew something about it, but I had not done any deep reading or that was not really part of my interest, you know, but that was a very disturbing period in American history when all these movements, you know, the feminist movement came a little bit after. But I knew a great deal about the American Indian movement, you know. Of course. There was an article, Red Power, in in one of the popular journals. But uh, the extent of uh, hostility which the white establishment had towards uh, people like Huey Newton was really extremely surprising to me so and disturbing disturbing as well so what what are some do you remember any of the things like the the files or the papers that sh- shocked you most like what shocked you most i think the details the details of his day to day life and the reading the glass which the people were putting on it you know uh, the term you know police encounter I really came to my attention by by going through some of the documents he had collected. You know, what, so. what do you mean by police encounter? Like brutality? Police brutality and the police completely dehumanizing you. Mm. Not really worrying about your rights, not really worrying about uh, uh, you as a human being, you know, but the, 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 just treating you as an object of terror, you know, so... In his thesis, Huey writes about these police encounters and goes even deeper. He brings up the FBI's involvement through the COINTELPRO program in the murders of Black Panther Party members like Bunchy Carter and John Huggins in California and Fred Hampton in Chicago. Some reports allege that 30 to 40 Panthers were killed at the hands of the police in the 1960s. I wondered about how the trauma of that era stayed with Huey as he worked through this PhD and raised the question with Mappa. 
I always felt he had some sense of guilt, survivor's guilt, perhaps, that many of his contemporaries had died a revolutionary death in the 60s, whereas he had survived into the 70s. Did you ever feel that from him? Oh, yeah, you are absolutely right, you know, but also his interaction with me were very different in the way he interacted with white people and reacted to white people. I remember there was a Hiskan party and all the graduate students were there. And at the moment, I don't remember, remember who it was, but it was a white person who put his hand on his shoulder and right away he reacted very, you know, violently. Mm-hmm. Because uh, the psychological memory, somebody laying his hand on him and that to not really a friend. So I'm sure at that point, my reading was that it triggered a kind of memory. And that's why he reacted that way. I had never seen him reacting that way before or after. So That reaction, jerking his body away from an unassuming hand rested on his shoulder, plays in my head over and over again. It feels weighty, like a paranoia took over his body momentarily before letting up. But did it let up? Or was it something he always carried with him? This brings us to the last extended story Papa will share here today. It's a moment near the end of Huey's time in the program, when he'd seemed to be done with his dissertation, one foot out the door, you might say. There used to be a requirement for all the Hiskani students in order to qualify for PhD. And it was to give a public demonstration of the thesis they were going to pursue. So even without asking me, he circulated maybe a pamphlet or somebody circulated the pamphlet that Mr. Huey Newton is going to present his thesis at College 5 Dining Hall. Now it is called Porter College. At that point, it was called College 5. So we had to arrange security, campus police, city police, to see that nothing bad happens. So some 400 people showed up, you know, to hear the defense of his thesis. And what he did, that he just presented a video on Hampton and how Fred really was facing the FBI in Chicago and the kind of violence, you know. The film he's talking about is called The Murder of Fred Hampton. It was highly acclaimed in 1971 when it was released, receiving four stars from Roger Ebert. A huge part of the appeal was that it featured raw footage from the crime scene, which provided an alternate account that rallied public support against the false claims of a shootout that the police were putting forward. I'd encourage you to check it out on YouTube and also watch Judas and the Black Messiah, which took pains to stay historically accurate during the raid on the fateful night of Fred Hampton's murder. I think the video was for about 50 minutes or so, and after that question and answer. So the Questions were rather hard, you know. 
we all thought the film was really quite telling and people will ask questions about the movement they will ask questions about his involvement in the movement or his association with hampton and all that but questions were uh, mr newton how come you are out you should be in jail hmm. or, from someone white said that someone yeah, someone in the audience uh, i think mostly white you know there were not then that many non white people on the campus during that period and uh, then another student asks so uh, why do you travel with so many cars uh, following you and he said well i have to have witnesses in case there is a police encounter and something happens to me so they are just to protect me somebody says asks him a question how many cars do you have hmm. he says i don't know but i think we have about 55 cars and it went on like that you know the questions kept coming and papa in his own way recalled getting more and more frustrated i did not think that it was an academic performance and i along with other members of the board at that point we were calling it board not department were somewhat uh, upset you know that how did i let it happen you know and i said i really had no say in it you know it was his show so they said you we write him a letter on behalf of the alafos explaining that this is not acceptable so i wrote a letter to him as chairman of the department you know board of studies that what you did is not really an academic performance and i don't think it is acceptable to have that in lieu of a written paper or which can be circulated and people will comment and they will ask questions and then you can defend so i said the whole thing really became a public occasion there was not really much academic on it so he was outraged you know and he said that let us meet as a committee and discuss so i says that is good now i'll be very happy to do that so even that really became rather an unruly group of people it was 30 plus people in all mostly faculty members stuffed into the background in a room where the real highlight was papa and huey so he asked me that uh, why do you say that this is not an academic performance so i said look uh, you had not really made the video video was made somebody some by somebody else you just showed it and i thought you will say something based on why you were really doing it so i did not see any academic component to it you know so and then all the questions which were asked had nothing to do with the video mm. or what you were really doing they were all irrelevant questions so so i don't think that is acceptable so i think he lost his temper he says you racist bastard you know uh, guided by rules and regulations so i said well uh you can tell me whatever you want to tell me that is not the point the point is that you want the degree and the degree has certain requirements when you applied you really wanted to be treated like any other student and now in the way you are behaving 
you think that we should give you an exception uh, because this is what you want to do. Hmm. It has to be acceptable to the committee. It has to be acceptable to the board. My job as an employee of the university and also as part of the administration is to let you know the rules and regulations and without cert certifying that you have fulfilled those rules and regulations, it will be difficult for us to uh, pursue uh, helping you in advancing your career towards your PhD. So I think uh, he cooled down. So he said, what do you want me to do? So I said, uh, what you did, uh, you just write a paper telling that what is it that that video was trying to say or do and in what way the kind of things FBI was doing to Fred Hampton were really pertinent to your life history. So if you write something academic, I will take it to the board and I will let you know the board's decisions. So that is what he did. And it became a respectable document. All members of the committee read it and we agreed that fine, you proceed with your PhD. So I think uh, some of my colleagues were saying that, Loki, uh, you are rather strict, you know, and you don't know who he is. Uh, you may get killed for what you are doing. So I said, no, no, I will not get killed for what I'm doing. I may get killed if I don't do what I'm supposed to do, but I'm not going to get killed for what I'm doing. And he understood it, you know, but he did, he did call me a couple of days after and he said, no hard feeling. And I said, no, no, I don't have any hard feeling. I was just doing my job. So he said, I'm sorry, I lost my cool, you know, and uh, told what I did. Uh, you are, of course, upholding the tradition of the university and the rules and regulations were not yours. They are really what the university asks you to do. So, yeah. Ultimately, they quashed the conflict and found a way to move past the disaster that was Huey's defense of his dissertation. But something still didn't compute for me. Huey did the reading. He went through the FBI files. He had ideas of his own. So what happened? Why do you think he showed that film in lieu of doing more of a presentation about his work? Do you think it was like a shortcut, like he wanted an easy way out? Uh, or like what was his motivation? You are, you are asking a very important question, you know, because that came to me as a surprise too. Hmm. And I thought that since uh, he wants to bring himself in, I think one way he can do that is also by introducing the audience to Fred Hampton and the role he was playing in the establishment of the Black Panther Party, you know, so. Yeah. He also got the impression that some of his teachers were very deferential to him, as he says they were in high school and other places. Yeah, so he thought he could get away with it. He, and in some respects, I have, uh, this is just my hunch. There is no way that I am going to prove it that dealing with minority students, many of the people who come from the majority community, they have a sense of fear. They have a sense, you know, that look, uh, you don't know what is going to happen. 
So as a result, they want somebody else to discipline them or they want somebody else to cite the rules and regulations to them. They, they really accept them and say that, let it go. Hmm. That's the impression I have. That's my gut feeling. And I always felt that I, as a teacher, every student is a student to me. I don't worry about, you know, gender, sexuality, race, class, and all that. That did not come into my consideration. And maybe I'm a little bit different from the norm, but that's the way I always felt. And now we arrive at the moment captured in the photo for today's episode, the culmination of the work Huey put towards acquiring a PhD. On the commencement graduation, I hooded him Mm. and all the newspapers had the front page story announcing that, you know. And I had many telephone calls from irate parents or grandparents uh, saying, how dare you give a PhD to this criminal? And uh, my niece is going to Berkeley. She has taken seven years and she's not yet PhD. And even some of the Senate members, you know, senior members of the Senate, walking to me and saying that, Loki, uh, did he just get an honorary degree or he did some work for it, you know? So from my point of view, it's basically uh, racism, you know, because if it was a white character who had gotten the degree, I don't think they would have asked that question, you know? Uh, We had a discussion, you know, how he was going to use his PhD. And he said, you know, that, uh, well, I'm going to use my uh, doctorate in order to apply for some grants uh, to work in the in the community. And I thought, you know, now since he has a PhD from a respectable uh, institution, I think he will have an easier time. Uh, unfortunately, so far as I know, uh, from the from the media and all that things did not work out that way so you remember the year you were born you know so I was in Cambridge during that period with your mother and you and your pai and uh, the newspapers reported I also watched in the British news that in an ambush he had been killed you know in Oakland and uh, I think by and by people started to forget him because of the way he had died, you know, because uh, I don't know the details, but you know that uh, people thought that uh, he had started to deal in dopes, you know, and and it was basically related to that, that he was ambushed on the road, you know, so. According to his wife, Frederica Newton, it was a nobody who pulled the trigger. Somebody in the street looking to make a name for himself by being the guy who shot Huey P. Newton. Some may see the life he lived past the 1960s as tragic, but for Papa, looking back on those years in the 1970s and early 80s with Huey brings back memories of a bond between teacher and student. It's a proud moment from a rich, meaningful life. I think Hui and I had a perfectly good relations. Uh, He was very respectful of me and I treated him like any other student. And I maintained the teacher-student relationship as it should be. And over a two year, three year period, uh, I think we became quite close, you know. He brought his wife Gwen to meet me. 
and he was able to get his degree and leave Santa Cruz respectfully. So. This episode was produced by me, Akash Pandey. Theme music by Dust Collector. Cover art by Aaron Zonka. Thank you to my father, Loki Pandey, Triloki Nath Pandey, Papa, for coming on the show. Thanks to all of you for listening to this episode or any episode this season. Really appreciate the support and the well wishes. Um, hope to hear from you. Send me what you liked, what you didn't like this season. I'm all ears. Uh, I'll also be doing a lot more podcasting. I'm sure I'll have something to share more formally on Instagram. But uh, big shout out to two artists whose music I use today, uh, legends from the 70s, Durando and Ike White. Thank you so much for listening, everybody.